the handoff between the great work that goes on at academic institutions like Stanford and what's going on in the commercial sector, that handoff is frequently inefficient and often ineffective. What's the future of health? Join hosts Dr. Stephanie Kuku, Gotham Gulati, and myself, Jordan Schlein, as we embark on a conversational journey with prominent speakers, experts, and innovators from the stages of the annual health conference. The goal is to explore the ideas that put humanity at the front and center of our evolving healthcare system. After all, health is about people. Hello, I'm Dr. Stephanie Kuku, and today I'm delighted to have with me Lloyd Minor. Lloyd Minor is a scientist, surgeon, and academic leader. He is the Carl and Elizabeth Norman Dean of Stanford University School of Medicine, a position he has held since December 2012. Dean Minor plays an integral role in setting strategy for the clinical enterprise of Stanford Medicine, the Academic Center, and Stanford Healthcare. With his leadership, Stanford Medicine has established a strategic vision to lead the biomedical revolution in precision health. Welcome and let's begin the conversation. I'm Dr. Stephanie Cuckoo and I have Lloyd Minor, who I've only just met and I've just heard on stage. Reading your bio makes me stop and take a breath. And that's only when I'm halfway down the page. How would you very briefly describe yourself to listeners. Tell us who you are and what you do. Well, thank you, Stephanie. And it's a privilege to be with you today. I'm the Dean of Stanford Medicine, the Dean of the Medical School at Stanford University. And in that role, I lead the strategy for our academic medical center. And uh, it's such an exciting time to be in medicine, in biomedicine today, and that the opportunities we have are greater than they've ever been. And I hope that we at Stanford are able to really capture those opportunities and bring them to the benefit of the people who entrust their care to us at our hospitals and clinics, but also to the world through the research we do and the training of future leaders that are a part of our medical education mission. That's wonderful. We open the show with what really matters in health, and that's ultimately people. Patients, doctors, nurses, healthcare professionals, entrepreneurs, people who fund medicine, policymakers. And in all that, a lot of people feel that along the way, humanity has been stripped away from healthcare, slightly. So we wanted to have a personal conversation about your, your thoughts about the future in health. And so I want to start by getting you perhaps to share a personal story either one about you and your journey to today and your passions, or even something about your own experience in healthcare or a loved one or someone close to you. Do you know anyone who's had a bad, frustrating or unexpected healthcare experience? And even more importantly, how would that have been different if we are today in that utopia? So if that experience had happened in this utopia where we envision this future of health that we're trying to create? I think the technological opportunities today will help us in medicine to get back to what I believe all of us went into medicine for in the first place. And that is 
to interact with our patients, to be the healthcare providers in the true sense of the word of being a compassionate, engaged member of a healthcare delivery team. Technology should be an enabler. Right now, I, I don't think it is an enabler. I think technology in all too many cases is serving as a barrier between our patients and those of us who are physicians. And it's come about because of a variety of factors, electronic health records, although they've improved many things such as access to medical records, which was difficult with paper charts, such as access to laboratory and radiology studies, improving the accuracy of prescribing. They've improved many things, but they've become an enormous burden in the practice of medicine. Nothing's worse than a patient going in to see a physician and that the physician is typing at the computer and not looking at the patient to really understand what that patient is feeling and experiencing in his or her life at that point uh, that they're interacting with us. That's, I think, going to change. I think we can transform. We have to transform electronic health records. But let's not think that we had the good old days 50 years ago when there was remarkably little that physicians could do in providing really good care for patients in the sense of bringing science to the benefit of patients. There's far more we can do today. Now we've got to introduce, as you said, the introduction to this question is lacking from healthcare delivery all too commonly today. I don't think it has to be lacking. And I think the people who go into medicine today really are going into it for all the right reasons. And that is in order to be able to truly interact with, take care of patients and their families, not to enter in data into electronic health record, but to use technology in the best sense to improve the quality and the value of the care that is delivered. In terms of personal experiences, you know, both from my my own family members that have had contact with healthcare delivery system. From my career as a physician scientist, I've, I've seen that there are so many forces that pull physicians away today from interacting with patients in the ways that we would like to interact with patients. And one of my goals at Stanford and beyond is to innovate in how we can return the ability of patients to interact directly with physicians, and also restore the joy and the meaningfulness of the practice of medicine. You know, today, a variety of different studies have shown that over 50% of practicing physicians in America today are burned out by a variety of different criteria. And this is an issue we've taken on directly at Stanford through establishing the first physician wellness program with a position in the dean's office for a national leader to direct that program of looking at well-being, and also by studying the issue of burnout and correspondingly, the very important issue of how we promote resilience among physicians, both those in training and those in practice. And what we found is that 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 resilience really is determined by a number of factors, but fundamentally three categories. The practice environment, and that's where improving the EHR plays such an important role. Also, the culture of wellness within the community. Are we as leaders, and with the way we structure our programs for our employees, for our physicians, are we really demonstrating a culture of wellness through the programs we offer, 
through what we demonstrate as leaders. And then finally, the third piece is personal resilience. And, and that's, you know, how do we, and yes, it's important. How do we have, you know, opportunities for meditation? How do we have exercise opportunities as a part of the environment and as a part of what we encourage? But it's only through addressing those three components that we're really going to be able to have the type of impact in physician wellness and well-being that we want to have. On the subject of wellness, that really brings me nicely into what I know because I've done my research, is one of your passions, which is preventative health. Precision health being that how we use, we use innovative ways to sort of predict disease rather than cure disease. I like the term, let's think about healthcare, not sick care. How do we prevent people from getting well in the first place. Patients, doctors in the workplace, how do we remove all the environmental, social things, and how do we pick up disease early? One of the things that interests me in the levels of prevention is this idea of, and this is, I think, new in the last couple of years, decade, is this idea of the sort of after the tertiary prevention, of the preventing things that arise because we as a healthcare community are over-treating, over-diagnosing, which really will come to sort of move and impact this idea of precision health. Are we going to then have all this technology that's fancy and cool and then put all this data together and then over-diagnose and over-treat and over-charge? What are your thoughts on how we, again, bring in that human element to being really balanced about these new technologies and this idea that they're going to change everything and, you know, save the world and prevent burnout and improve outcomes. Let's talk about prevention, especially that prevention that is due to overdiagnosing and how you think precision health can really be cautious and mindful of that. A couple of thoughts here. Academic medicine in the United States has become really focused on tertiary and quaternary care. And certainly we provide care to the most complex cases at Stanford, and we want to continue to do that. But the same things that have enabled us to improve cancer care and the care of patients with heart disease, those same enablers of genomics and data science can and should be applied to predicting and preventing disease as well. So the goal of precision health, as you just indicated, is to predict prevent and cure precisely, but really in that order, because the better we are at predicting and preventing the disease, the less we're going to need ultimately for the ultra-complex tertiary and quaternary care. And of course, more importantly, the better we are at predicting and preventing disease, the better we're going to have in terms of outcomes for our patients, which is, after all, the goal of everything we do. Now, I think in terms of the, the issues of overdiagnosis, One of the problems is we haven't had the type of diagnostics that confer the specificity we want to see. And so that's that's a scientific and technological problem, Uh, but one which I think is improving dramatically. We just came from a session on the use of AI in, in interpreting radiology studies. There are already good examples, and we're still relatively early in that, in the evolution of that technology. But there are already great examples of the improvement in diagnosis and the accuracy of diagnoses because of the use of machine learning techniques in interpreting radiology studies. It isn't 
either or, it isn't AI or radiologists. It's increasingly going to become and, AI with experienced radiologists. That's one example. Early stage diagnostics tests for diseases like cancer. There's a revolution going on in that field today. And I feel confident that five years from now, we'll have a much better diagnostic armamentarian, armamentarian, particularly for bringing to diseases that today we traditionally diagnose very late, like pancreatic cancer and ovarian cancer. It's a combination of applying the very best technology, developing that technology, and also translating the discoveries in biomedicine that are increasing at a prodigious pace today, translating those fundamental discoveries about the way our human body works, translating those discoveries into improved diagnostics and improved therapeutics. This is also the renaissance for doing that as well. Wonderful. I think at this point, it would be really interesting to pick up on something that I've heard today and I keep hearing, and it's this idea of democratizing health. And I, I, the word democracy, again, comes back to people and humans, and that's, that's why we're doing this, and that's why we're having this conversation. I come from the National Health Service in England. It's the largest single-payer system in the world. Inequalities will exist in healthcare always. And this idea and this vision of utopia where AI and these technologies will democratize health and it will bring knowledge and expertise to everyone, the disadvantage globally, even as inequalities exist now, even within all healthcare systems, whether it's the NHS, whether it's the private system, how do we really think we're going to achieve that practically? Do we think that eventually these technologies and AI will trickle down to all these systems globally and we will get some sort of global benefit from, you know, technology in the future of health? I do think that will be the case. and I think we're already seeing evidence of it. I'll mention just a few examples. A group of Stanford dermatologists and computer scientists developed and published in Nature an algorithm that can make a diagnosis of a skin lesion based upon a photograph taken from your smartphone as accurately as a group of trained dermatologists can from that same photograph. That's remarkably democratizing because not every community, even within the United States, has a dermatologist. And even those communities that have dermatologists, patients aren't always able to access their services. Now spread that to the developing world and you truly see the type of transformative impact that digital technologies and machine learning techniques can have. I think a few things have to be overcome in order to really realize the full potential of the democratization of data and healthcare. One is that data need to be more interoperable than they are today. You're from the NHS, and as I've gotten to know the NHS, there are so many things about the NHS that I think are models for us to learn from. But one challenge the NHS has is that even though it is a national health service, data and information are maintained and controlled locally within the individual NHS trusts. So there's little or no interoperability. That's right. Or it certainly could be better. I think everyone would agree. And the same is true within the United States. Now, of course, we have to protect the security of data and the privacy of individuals. But there are ways that we can approach, we can do that effectively. 
In the U.S., there haven't necessarily been the incentives for allowing data to be interoperable, and we need to break down the barriers and provide more incentives for interoperability of data. The limitation of techniques like AI today, those limitations are not related to storage of data. Storage is an issue that by and large has been solved. And the limitations are by and large not related to algorithm development uh, because that's progressing at a prodigious pace. The real limitation is getting access to the data that will train the algorithms that then will deliver the types of interpretations and results that will, going back to your earlier point, reduce the misdiagnoses, reduce the over-testing or over-interventions that come from erroneous diagnoses. That's the way to really break down those difficulties that exist today. The lack of interoperability data of data is not the only factor, but it is a major contributing factor to the lack of precision in the delivery of healthcare in ways we know we're able to achieve. That moves on nicely to my thoughts um, on the next question, which is really about the challenges people face, the, the, the realities of innovation problem solving. It's one thing having this mission and vision, and then the other thing is the practical things, not the things around regulation and all the things we know that are barriers and obstacles, but personal things, personal things within teams, within people, within multidisciplinary communities, especially in the context that, you know, you're the first academic that we've had on this um, show so far. There is now this new, thankfully, intimate relationship between industry, tech startups, and academia. I would always read a paper out of Stanford first if I have a list of new papers to read before anywhere else. And I think most people are like that. What challenges do you face? I mean, you are in a position where you assess what you think may or may not be practical, but what challenges do you face overall in thinking about, especially with your biomedical innovation project at Stanford? What are the challenges, the forces, the people that make things easy or hard? There are some things that academia does very, very well. Stanford is Stanford because of our faculty. We recruit and retain the very best people in their fields. We also focus on having a diverse faculty and having an atmosphere that is inclusive and enables each of our faculty members and the students with whom they work to really realize their full potential. An environment like Stanford should never be overmanaged. My role as dean is never to tell people what they have to do. My role is to enable people to realize the maximum benefit of their talent and to allow them to pursue the research and the areas of study that they're driven to pursue. And if we do that effectively, amazing things come out. Now, that's great for getting things started. It's wonderful for innovation. It's not necessarily the way to get things scaled. And that's where industry really comes in. When one of our scientists has a fundamental discovery, for example, let's, let's take drug discovery as being an example, because that's an area that, that we're going to focus on a lot in the coming years at Stanford. There's such an incredible environment today of new discoveries in basic biomedicine about how the body works. We're going to accelerate that even further. But then getting from the discovery of a new receptor or the discovery of a new risk factor and knowing how 
that can be generalized into a new diagnostic or developed into a new diagnostic or new therapeutic. That process from fundamental discovery to a prototype molecule or therapeutic, if it's a medical device, that process today breaks down all too commonly. And so the handoff between the great work that goes on at academic institutions like Stanford and what's going on in the commercial sector, that handoff is frequently inefficient and often ineffective. We want to be able to bridge that gap and make sure that fundamental discoveries get followed up on in a way that new diagnostics and new therapeutics get developed in a fluid fashion. And there are a number of things that we're doing to enhance that. But fundamentally, I think there there should be a collaborative interaction between academia and industry, always maintaining, though, the integrity of the academic institution that we're about discovery and that commercialization, while related to our mission, in most cases, is going to be better pursued outside of the walls of our institution. Imagine the future of medicine as you would like it to be, given that you have spent so many wonderful years contributing to it greatly. What would you do differently or what else would you do if you had no limitations, if things were easier than they were? What would you do? Something could be sort of totally, you know, what what is it that you're doing? I mean, you're doing a lot of exciting and important things, but without the limitations that we encounter in all industries, is there anything wacky or completely uh, unimaginable that you would try and change if you had no limits, if you had superpowers? I don't think there's anything that's unimaginable. There are many things that are far more difficult And to me, the real opportunity today in health and healthcare is to address the social, behavioral, and environmental determinants of health. The medical care that we provide at Stanford or other institutions provide, coupled with our genetics, the genetics of you and I, our our makeup, our predisposition to diseases, medical care plus genetics accounts for maybe 25, 30% of the overall picture of our health. The other 70% is related to social, behavioral, and environmental factors. And historically, in the United States in particular, we've done very little. And I have to place also the responsibility on the shoulders of those of us in academia and academic medicine. We've done far less in addressing social, behavioral, environmental determinants of health than we have at addressing the medical and genetic components of health. I'm not saying we should back away from addressing the medical and genomic components, By far, we should not. But we also have to be thinking innovatively and creatively about how we address social, behavioral, and environmental determinants. And one of the things that excites me the most in that space is the broad area of digital health, where, again, because of what we talked about before, the democratizing effects of many of these digital technologies, and we've seen it in other sectors, the way we order goods and services, the way we perform financial transactions— Those have gotten a lot better, more interactive, and empowered people in ways that just a decade ago we might not have even envisioned would be possible. Now we need to do the same thing in health, and we need to bring those enablers of digital technologies to enable people to form communities that will help to facilitate behavior change, to break down some of the socioeconomic barriers that have existed in the past in terms of access to health, to healthy foods, to healthcare delivery services. That, to me, 
is the most difficult challenge because it also gets into how our healthcare delivery system is financed and sort of our classic views of what is the responsibility of the healthcare delivery system and what is an individual's responsibility. It makes me so happy that you brought up social determinants of health. You know, one of the reasons that we all were excited to get involved in this was that we were told, just have a conversation about the future of health, but let it be about humans and and let it just bring back the human element. And I was involved in a conversation recently where someone said, someone in finance, why should access to healthcare be equal when access to housing, food, shelter, and clean air isn't equal? And I did not have a comeback. And so, yes, I agree that it's it's an area that some people are looking at, and it's super exciting that it's an area that you're excited about too. We're going to end, Dean Miner, with a bit of fun. We want to know a bit about you. We know all about the amazing things you're doing and your passion for creating this hopefully brighter, less complex, messy future healthcare system. We have sort of three rapid-fire closing questions we've asked all our um, guests. I'm going to start. First word that comes to mind when you think of health? Opportunity. Who is the person that inspires you the most when you think about what the future of health should look like? I think the person who inspires me the most and whose writings I've studied the most and I try to apply as a leader is Nelson Mandela and what he was able to accomplish in his life and the adversity that he overcame in his life. What's your favorite podcast and why? And if you don't listen to podcasts, what book would you recommend everyone reads to get them smarter on healthcare? Or both, you could answer both. Well, I think in terms of the opportunity in healthcare, the book that I most recently read, that's not specifically devoted to healthcare, but it shows the opportunity of technology is a book called The Code by Margaret O'Mara. It's a history of Silicon Valley. And as I read that book and living now in Silicon Valley, working at Stanford and really trying to understand the ecosystem that enabled us to transform so many things, mostly for the better, but also some things for the worse. I'm constantly thinking about, well, how can we leverage the best of what's occurred in Silicon Valley and apply it to health and healthcare? And and that book, The Code, I think is the most definitive and also well-written history of Silicon Valley that I've read. And as I read it, I was thinking so much of this, I hope 15 years from now, that either Margaret O'Mara or someone else is going to write a history of Silicon Valley and associated regions uh, in healthcare that is just as impactful as what has occurred in the past 25 years in technology writ large in Silicon Valley. So that would be be one I'd mention. I hope that we'll be able to contribute some to that dialogue in, in a book that I've written describing our vision of precision health that will come out later in the winter and the spring where I offer some suggestions and ideas based on what we're doing at Stanford and also some ideas coming from the ecosystem around us that should drive improvements in healthcare and in healthcare and and in health. I look forward to reading it. Um, I'm going to give you one last one just for you, just because we've got a bit of time and it's been such a pleasure speaking to you. A piece of advice you have most frequently shared with others. Medical students, we didn't get to talk about medical education. I know that's what you do, but anything, anything at all I can take away with me. I would say that life is not a sprint. It's a long distance run. And uh, you have to look upon 
every failure as being an opportunity to learn and to be successful. And finally, something that I keep in mind because it's inscribed on a box that my wife gave to me, a little box that holds business cards my wife gave to me when I moved from being a department chair at Johns Hopkins being provost of the university. And the quote is, in order to discover new oceans, you have to have the courage to lose sight of the shore. And I encourage people to have courage to go after dreams that may at first seem to be untenable or impossible to achieve. Because unless you do, and you have to plan it carefully, but unless you do set your goals high, unless you do challenge yourself, and you do leave side of the shore, you'll never have the type of impact that you can have as an individual or that we can have as teams. Dean Miner, it's been an honor. Thank That's you an honor for, for me. being our guest. Thank on you very Health much, Matters. Stephanie. Take care. Hi again, it's me, Stephanie Cuckoo. If you're still listening, I'm hoping it's because you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. It's super easy to get notified of future episodes. Simply subscribe to Health Matters, that's H-L-T-H Matters, on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And don't forget to leave us a review. See you next time.